The Defence Secretary visits Estonia for one of the biggest deployments of British troops since Afghanistan. It's a full-scale battle group, over 800 British troops, 350 French troops with it. Sabre-rattling in North Korea, but who's really in charge? And here we go again, yet another general election. The Defence Secretary says NATO will keep its promises to the Baltic states. Sir Michael Fallon has visited Estonia today, where 800 British troops have been deployed to the UK-led NATO Enhanced Forward Presence Battle Group. At today's formal opening, he told Forces Radio BFBS that this deployment aimed to reassure the Baltic states in the face of any aggression from Russia. This is one of our largest ever deployments to Eastern Europe. It's a full-scale battle group, over 800 British troops, some 350 French troops with it. And the purpose of this uh, deployment is uh, not to replace what the Estonian forces are already ready to do, but to help deter any threat of Russian aggression and to reassure those countries, particularly the Baltic states, on the eastern flank of NATO, that we will always come to their aid. It shows that NATO is ready to respond, that NATO is not obsolete, that NATO is agile and ready to back up its uh, commitments at the Warsaw Summit last year and make these large-scale deployments in each of the Baltic states and in Poland. And you will see RAF typhoons departing next week uh, to Romania to carry out uh, southern, area, southern air policing as well. And he went on to explain what British troops would be doing there. They will be exercising with Estonian forces. They'll be linking up with other NATO troops in Latvia and Lithuania. They will be uh, training together and uh, looking at uh, the way in which the different militaries uh, do things so that they become increasingly interoperable in future. We've set out the command uh, controls. Uh, the battle group comes under the tactical command of the local Estonia commander, but also strategically under, the, under NATO authority as well. So that in the end would be a NATO decision uh, in which, of course, Britain would play, play its part. Well, listening to the Defence Secretary, with me here is BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. So the biggest deployment of its kind to this part of Eastern Europe. What do you make of it, Christopher? Well, it's a full-scale battle group. That's about 800 people. It's not a huge deployment, I have to say. I mean, it's not like a brigade going in, which you, uh, a large brigade formation where you'd lead much more logistical backup, etc. You'd be there for longer periods. Um, you would have a, a completely different setup. But it is important. Now, it's important not so much because it's Estonia, although the tactical commander is an Estonian, which is very important. It shows that you can work with local commanders. You just don't go in and say, listen, buddy, this is how we do things in the real world. You, you've got that. But the important thing, you've got three countries there, three states. You've got uh, Estonia, Lithuania and, and Latvia. They all have uh, an interest to, the Rus to Russia. They all feel oppressed and perhaps even threatened, but not threatened by a, suddenly getting a, a heap of missiles chucked at them. They are in, uh, feel oppressed because there is a, quite a large uh, Russian-speaking community, uh, people whose, whose heartlands are in fact Russian, who think Russian, who feel very strongly. And if you think about Ukraine 
Eastern Ukraine, same sort of thing there. There you had the, the, the Russian contingent, the diaspora almost. Now, that's what they fear. It is important that, that the Estonians who are in command of this say part of an exercise mm. is to assume that there has been instigation, that there has been uh, Russian speakers have started to make trouble and wanting to and call on a Russia to come and help them. Uh, from from their motherland. Now that is the. I was in I was in Estad a couple of week uh, weeks ago, which is looking across in the Baltic uh, with with the Swedish Navy, and they were operating what they call uh, by central controls mm-hmm. with their ships, and they are nothing to do with it. I mean they're neutral, but that was the extent of the of the interest in that part of the world with what the, what in particularly the British and French are doing at uh, the moment. Uh, the Russians have described this deployment as provocative and if you take into account what you were saying about the Russian heritage of some of those people is there any possibility that it may in some way although it's intended to reassure perhaps cause some kind of problems internally in some of the countries? It does it does cause problems and you have uh, you have uh, meetings of what used to be the old uh, the old Baltic I can't remember the, uh, the title something like the, uh, the Baltic the Baltic and Central Workers Groups and they have been holding meetings. They have been saying, "Our heartland is Russia. We 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 feel Russian, and therefore we find this as almost like an invasion." Which is exactly what the Ukrainians felt about Eastern when the Russians moved into Eastern U- of course, uh, Ukraine. Of course, we've been, we've been building up to this deployment for some time, following every sort of deployment and arrival of equipment, etc. Um, what do you think the next sort of news line will be coming from this? Um, well, obviously, you're going to have the success of the uh, Sussex of the. Uh, of the enterprise so but i think what would be interesting i'd love to be able to read the unabridged analysis of the tactical command of this it's not a big group as i say because uh because the tactical command is in is under a, a, a an estonian uh commander now if you've got that you will say hang on we've just added a military arm that wasn't there before, mm. like that command system. And command system comes with uh, not only manpower; it comes with uh, it, it comes with political backing. It also becomes communications. It means that your communications can talk to my communications, etc. Even simple things like I can drive my tank up the uh, up the high street and I can get fuel, whereas before you couldn't even do that. Was your tank run out of fuel? You've got a problem. You wait for the Bowser. It's that will be, I think, is. The, which, which won't be in the headlines, but it will be, I think, the most important part of any wash-up. So, with the official start of the UK-led NATO mission in Estonia, we thought it would be timely to look at where British forces are currently deployed or on exercise around the world. Well, earlier I spoke to the former Director-General of the Royal United Services Institute, Professor Michael Clark, and started by asking him where else Britain has troops in Europe. Well, apart from Estonia, um, in Europe, we've got uh, troops coming out of Germany. We've still got two or three bases that are open in Germany, like Gütersloh and uh, Paderborn, where there are smallish units, but they'll all be out by 2019. And then we've got a detachment in Kosovo, of course, there's still a job to do there. And we've got forces in Gibraltar, because Gibraltar is getting even more important to us as events in the Middle East become more difficult. And the Mediterranean, of course, is a, a big area of operations. Indeed. Uh, let's move on to Africa. What have we got there? 
uh, two main areas. One in Kenya, there's a, a training mission there for to, to train uh, Kenyan forces, but also for our own troops to train. And then we've got another base in Sierra Leone, again, which has got a training function, and some of our own troops rotate through that. But mainly that one is to, to train Sierra Leonean forces. Mm. Perhaps one of the highest profile in terms of the media is the RAF's Operation Shader. Just tell us what is going on exactly, where troops uh, are in the Middle East. Well, in the Middle East, we've got troops actually in Iraq who are training Kurdish and Iraqi army forces. But Operation Shader is mainly an air force operation, of course, because that's the bombing uh, operations against uh, Daesh, uh, Islamic State, so-called, in Libya and uh, Syria. So those operations are running from uh, from the Gulf, uh, from a couple of bases in the Gulf, um, some of which I'll, I'll not talk about too much because they operate the, um, uh, the drones, but also mainly from Cyprus. So the Air Force is mainly involved in Operation Shader, but the Army is on the ground um, doing some training for the Iraqis and the Kurds. Mm. Asia? Uh, in Asia, um, we've got uh, the, mainly the Navy. I mean, we've got forces, of course, in Brunei. Um, the, the, we've got the Gurkhas in Brunei. Um, and uh, individual training operations that go to Asia. But essentially, uh, Asia is the, the Navy uh, keeps a, a force that goes fairly regularly uh, into the Indian Ocean, I mean, where it can. Um, and we, of course, we have responsibilities to uh, South Korea, although we don't have any forces there, but we have responsibilities to guarantee South Korea's independence going back to 1953. And that may become a bit more relevant in the years to come. Yes, indeed. Just on that note, um, who actually decides where deployments should be placed and how does the process actually work? Well, all three armed forces have their regular deployments. So the RAF has got its three or four jobs that it always, at the moment, is always doing. The Royal Navy has its, its standing patrols in the North Atlantic and the South Atlantic and the NATO Maritime Group. And then the Army has its it's the jobs that it needs to do in terms of what it's been doing in Germany and what it does in training areas. But, but then they try to respond to events. And you can tell if you look at the pattern of deployments over the last five or ten years, they're always responding to something. So interestingly, if you look at uh, the deployments around the globe ten years ago, it's about 30 different operations. And it's still in the, in the mid-twenties, even though it's a different set of operations um, as events develop. And how are British forces actually coping with this mid-twenties level of deployments and operations? Well, the fact is that, I mean, we get enormous value out of what they do. They're incredibly cost-effective. If we send an air detachment or a, a ship or a, a, a battalion of troops or a training mission, whatever it is, they are extremely good value for money. There's no question about it. And they're welcomed and they make a difference. Question is whether they make a strategic difference because we only have fairly small forces. And so, you know, when you look at what the Navy is doing, for instance, it turns out that they can deploy more or less one capital ship per ocean, you know, North and South Atlantic, Pacific, Indian Ocean. In the rotational uh, requirements that they have and the jobs they have to do, they can employ about one ship. The, the, the Air Force has got three or four jobs on at the moment, including the air defense of the United Kingdom, and that stretches the Air Force completely. It's all they can possibly do uh, at the moment. The Army's got a little bit more slack because of coming back from Germany and the end of the Afghan operations. But nevertheless, it's trying to reform itself into a, into a more major European warfighting force, which may be sensible for the future. So our, our problem is always not the expertise or not the value for money, but the difference that we can make at low numbers. That's always a dilemma. Are you suggesting then that if very relatively little strategic difference can be made, that, that perhaps this is money not wisely spent in these deployments? 
Well, it depends whether we want the money to promote Great Britain and promote our diplomatic relations around the world. And in that respect, it's money very well spent. But if we are telling ourselves, as some of our politicians do, that we're really making a big difference to peacekeeping operations here or there, or we're really making a big difference to uh, to the defeat of IS forces in the Middle East, the answer is probably not, because we simply don't have enough to put into the pot. Um, you know, strategic decision making is about moving fairly big forces in and out of theatres and changing the game, changing the rules of the game. We don't often do that these days because we're trying to do a great many things with a fairly badly stretched set of forces. That was Professor Michael Clark. Uh, Christopher, there was one rather interesting one we missed out there, wasn't there? Falklands. Of course. Falklands. I mean, we've got really good reason to be there, and we're going to be there for the rest of the average soldier. If he goes to the Falklands in his first deployment, he'll probably retire there, or he'll do so. Mm. Um, the it, it is quite interesting. There are there are the standard things that you have to do, like still in Germany, Gibraltar is is is, is an important thing. You think, oh, well, nothing's happening there, and suddenly, with Brexit, you get the Spanish saying, "Oh, we've got a deal going here. We might even find a way of getting Gibraltar back." So mm. it's always these places are always on the level, and just as you got with Buenos Aires. Brings up to speed on up. the Afghanistan deployment because how long will there be British um, British presence out there? Decade could easily be a decade. I mean, it's not quite as long as it takes, but it could be. It could get that close to it. What is interesting is how much can change in a decade. You know, you, 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 you send in a MOAB and you say, right, we just flattened the IS. You haven't flattened the IS, you just have flattened the guys underneath the bomb uh, because this will, Daesh will, will, will grow again in the next door valley. And so you'll get, you, you don't know where you're going to be within the next 10 years. And I think that is it at the moment. There are 26 countries in which British forces operate. Uh, every single ocean, as Mike was saying, every single ocean has, has the Royal Navy in. Uh, this is quite, quite a, a, a commitment. Uh, and that's why you look at the defence budgets, for example, and you say, we're going to take a few, few thousand off. Or we're going to put some of the foreign aid budget in because a lot of these things, like what's going on in Sudan, British troops go to Sudan, that's considered part of foreign aid mm. and humanitarian, it's a humanitarian process. And so when you start getting mixed up like that, you then say, look, we're sending, let's say, 100 guys, but you don't just send 100 guys. You have to say, we've got to earmark, let's say, 500, mm. because you're going to turn them around all the time. Just briefly, um, Michael Clark was saying there about uh, numbers and how it's very difficult to make a strategic difference on some of the deployments. H- how important do you think it is that, that each deployment does make a strategic difference, or, or is it OK not to do so in certain ones? No, I don't think it's OK not to do so, but it, I mean, it, it's put it this way, it's not why you're there. And quite often, if you're sending 100 guys in, in, in for a training operation, you're not there to suddenly say, oh, that's Iraq fixed. Uh, you're there to do that particular job. Without it, perhaps whatever's happening, the operation goes down a bit. And so what you're doing is making that sort of contribution. But you're not there, you're not there to change the world. Mm. And uh, just in case we leave anyone out, Canada and Belize, of course, shouldn't, shouldn't stop without mentioning those two. They should not, especially Canada, which some people say is the, is, is the United Kingdom going to maintain Canada in the future. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, the F-35A arrives at RAF Lakenheath. Now, North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un held a military parade at the weekend to show off the country's military strength. 
Then a missile launch went wrong. Is this a sign that his show of strength is not quite to be believed? Well, we're joined by Professor Hazel Smith from the Centre of Korean Studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. And Christina Variali, Research Analyst Proliferation and Nuclear Policy at the Royal United Services Institute. Hello to both of you. Uh, Professor Smith, if I can come to you first. Kim Jong-un is, a, is presented as the man in North Korea, but we know since the beginning of North Korea that the innermost committee of the People's Workers' Party actually run the country. Who is the man behind the throne? Well, it's an interesting question because there are a number of families, small number of families uh, in the elite which are today competing for power and influence um, it, within uh, within North Korea. Of course, the Kim family is one of them, but it's only just one of them. And there is a big uh, argument as to whether or not, even if Kim Jong-un, we often hear the word, was decapitated from North Korea, uh, there seems to be an assumption sometimes made that that would mean that the current regime would fall. And that's... And, very, very unlikely. Uh, there's an, a very important person in terms of the power that he holds called Huang Pyongso, who run, who has the leading role in the state machinery, the army machinery, uh, and the party machinery. Um, and it looks like, although it's very fluid at the moment, that he is, uh, a, if not the controlling influence, one of the most important people in the country in terms of who's making decisions. So it's a very fluid situation. It's a very different situation than, say, when Kim Jong-il, the father of this leader, was alive, or uh, Kim Il-sung, the founder of the state, was alive, because they, in fact, not only were brutal, but they were effective political managers of all the different interests and factions within the country. And this person doesn't have that experience and, and is manifestly able to, to manage uh, all, all these different political interests. Not not, of course, democratic interests, but interests within the political elite. So how stable is the system that is behind Kim Jong-un at the moment? Well, again, it depends what you mean. Uh, what the society I mean, if he, if he were, say he were to be decapitated, you're, you're suggesting that the actual status quo in terms of who's actually running the country would remain the same, but the same, at the same time you're saying that there are also competing families. No, what... Uh, Yes, exactly. Uh, again, depends what you mean. Uh, the regime can continue without Kim Jong-un. There's absolutely no doubt about that because the ideology has been built up. You know, all nations have nation-building mythologies in songs, in in uh, in TV, in culture, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All that's built up and it's in the constitution, and it can survive without Kim Jong-un. Uh, so, but but that doesn't mean to say that the country is stable because there are these very conflicting interests now at the top. His, uh, ten ten years ago or so, for instance, before. Uh, the uh, the advent of this particular leader, there was a big debate uh, within the North Korean uh, elite as to whether or not diplomacy should be given a chance with the United States or whether they should simply rely on what they call their nuclear deterrent. That debate has been won by the militarists uh, within the regime and there's no doubt that there's going to be no change in their policy unless they get a cast iron security deal, which means that they personally would be safe. In other mm. words, that they wouldn't land in front of the International Court of Justice where, or worse. And where is China in that at the moment? Well, China's made its policy pretty clear, I think. I mean, it is the has a thousand mile border uh, with North Korea r compared to, say, Russia's 10 mile border, which is, which is fairly open. 
Uh, 90% of North Korea's trade go, it goes through China, imports and exports. And China does not support the nuclearization uh, of North Korea and is very concerned because it doesn't have direct political influence over North Korea. It never has done, despite the fact that, for instance, during the Korean War between 50 and 53, nobody knows the exact numbers, but probably up to a million Chinese died in combat on the North Korean side. This did not translate into political influence. They are also concerned that there are simply no diplomatic channels open between the major players at the moment. And this is this has not always been the case, even when there's the, the, the conflict has been very grave. Uh, for instance, again, 10 or 15 years ago, we saw we saw people being killed in battles, uh, battle shootouts uh, in this in the sea border the maritime border which divides North and South Korea, but there were some channels open for diplomacy which stopped the conflict being escalating. What China thinks, not just China, but also a number of people within the US uh, policy establishment, for example, foreign policy establishment, defense, that one of the problems today is that there are no, or very, very few, very limited uh, channels open to de-escalate a conflict were it to start a military conflict. Mm. Uh, Christina Variale, uh, we talk about North Korea with its missiles, its intercontinental ballistic missiles, next stage is supposed to be that, and nuclear programs. Which, which missiles are actually operational at the moment? Um, so that's a great question. We saw the military parade in Pyongyang last weekend that did parade a, n a number of um, their missile capabilities through the streets of Pyongyang. So following um, a, a number of new uh, missile tests last year, uh, we do now know that the, the Musadan um, is a, a functioning intermediate range ballistic missile. Uh, prior to those tests last year, it was assumed that that missile was operational. Uh, the first test then actually failed about this time last year. Um, and then the following, I think it was then six tests in total, um, ended up with a positive result for the Musadam. Um, following that, we've also recently seen um, tests of the submarine launched ballistic missile, so that's the KN-11, and then the land-based version of that as well, which is the KN-15. They're both still in development, mm. um, but what we what we do know that they do have in terms of operational capabilities is their SCUDs and their Nodongs, so they're shorter and medium-range liquid fuel missiles. What do you think the West should be most concerned about at the moment? I think in terms of targeting uh, the, the US homeland, the primary concern there is going to be the development of an intercontinental ballistic missile that can carry a nuclear warhead. Um, but within the region, the, re the West is also very concerned about the stability, not just on the Korean Peninsula, but in, in the region more broadly. Um, obviously, we did see the, the provocations of missile launches. Um, it's been estimated that the nuclear test site is actually ready for um, authorization of a, a sixth nuclear test. And it's those escalations and those provocations that if they're not managed by the West, whether that's the US in partnership with its allies, Japan and South Korea, um, in conversation with China, it's ensuring that those those provocations don't get don't escalate and go out of control. Um, and we step towards the, the brink of conventional conflict in the first instance. Professor Hazel-Smith, what do you think uh, North Korea is trying to achieve with the development of its nuclear programme exactly? Well, I think this is very simple. Uh, they um, have actually told us what they're trying to achieve. Uh, they think that um, were it not for the development of the nuclear weapons programme, they would be at risk of military intervention. They argue that Saddam Hussein, that Gaddafi were overturned because they abandoned what they consider is their major card in terms of the relationships with the West. They don't believe, and they haven't done for 25 years or so, but this isn't something that they that they broadcast, that they could rely on their conventional army, which is about seven, 
700 or 800,000 people. And they don't believe this because they learned from the Iraq War of 1990 to 1991, when the Iraqi conscript army collapsed in the face of a, uh, a US attack, uh, that their army would do much better than the Iraqi army of the time. This is a big shock because everybody thought that the Iraqi troops were battle-hardened from the Iran-Iraq wars of the 1980s. It's a big shock to everybody. Mm. Since, And this is what motivated them to develop what they consider, we don't have to agree with it, but what they consider uh, is their major card in preventing some form of military intervention. Uh, so that's one. And by preventing military intervention, they, they are talking about regime survival, mm. not just territorial defence. So uh, territorial defence is one thing if, if you're talking about wholesale uh, military intervention. But the other thing is that their other major aim is to try to uh, to, to keep the individually uh, and their families safe uh, uh, in, in a position where, where they're not going to be vulnerable. And they would have seen the, position, the, the pictures, for instance, of Saddam Hussein in prison, of Gaddafi being dragged on the ground. They know that the, most of the people in North Korea simply don't believe a word of the current propaganda because they haven't been able to rely on the state for 25 years. Uh, and so that there are that there is a, a society these days which is completely separate in terms of what it believes to be true from the government. Mm. This didn't used to be true before yes. the famine of the 1990s, but it's true today. Just, just briefly, um, Professor Hazel Smith, what if, what if Donald Trump were to throw a curveball and he suggested and carried out a visit to North Korea? What would be the impact of that? Well, North Korea is um, an interesting uh, state in terms of its philosophy. Is it does uh, con- it does um, itself as a knows very much. It like non-state actors. It prefers to deal with conventional state leaders. Uh, if Trump was to do that, uh, and and I'm I'm smiling a bit because I, I, I can envisage the pictures of Kim Jong Un and, and President Trump on the same <laughs> Can't platform, we all? and it does look very bizarre to me. Uh, but I, I think that they would roll out the red carpet. Mm. Uh, they would endeavour to do some form of deal. I'm sure of that. Mm. But the problem these days, and I refer back to what I was talking about earlier, is that it doesn't look like you have a leader in charge. It's a very big country. It's 25 million people, Mm. uh, same population size as Australia, with lots of different, for instance, security apparatuses, all in conflict with each other. It doesn't look like you've got a leader there that could implement a deal Mm. and bring everybody uh, uh, forward in the implementation of a nuclear deal. So it's not just, it's not simply arriving at a security deal, it's the implementation of it that's an issue now. Okay, we'll leave it on that thought. Thank you very much to both of you, Professor Hazel Smith and Christina Variali, thank you. Now, F-35A Lightning II aircraft have begun training at RF Lakenheath. The flights mark the first overseas training deployment for the American aircraft. Ali Gibson has more. The ground trembles as an F-35A takes off from RAF Lakenheath. This is a milestone for the American programme. The fifth-generation joint strike fighter is on its first overseas training exercise. Major Brian Blackburn is from the 34th Fighter Squadron. We haven't done this yet. We haven't brought the F-35A model across the the ocean as a full squadron. So it's very exciting all around. I think uh, the host nation combined with RAF Lakenheath have been phenomenal. Over the next few weeks, American Air Force personnel will conduct air operations with the Royal Air Force and other European aircraft. It's training, but it also sends out a message in defence of NATO, part of the European Reassurance Initiative. General Todd Walters is the commander US Air Forces in Europe and Africa. This system, these mission supporters, these operators, they are game changers. 
The inaugural F-35A deployment to Europe was planned to maximize training, strengthen the alliance, and enhance NATO's deterrence posture. Sovereignty of the skies over the NATO nations is paramount. This exercise at Lake and Heath is very much an affirmation of friendship between the two nations. The Americans' F-35As will integrate with the British F-35B variant, which will be welcomed to nearby RAF Marham in 2018. Air Marshal Stuart Atha is the RAF's Deputy Commander of Operations. We'll be flying F-35 just up the road from here, and I think the opportunities that the geographical location provides is going to be really considerable. So our relationship that has had many chapters on it has just had a new one opened here today. For the F-35 programme, this training deployment is a valuable step towards the future, and in the wake of increased Russian aggression, perhaps too a show of force. Ali Gibson for BFBS in Lakenheath. And now, before we finish this week, I uh, should mention the big white elephant in the room, Christopher. There's going to be another general election. Um, how big do you think defence will feature this time round? No, defence won't feature uh, that big, and it doesn't really matter what we think until we see the manifesto. When the manifesto is published, if there's reference to defence, then we start taking it seriously because it means that it's something that the government wants to get through. If anything's in the manifesto, you don't think there will be the anything, reason do for you? that is that the House of Lords that can actually foul up government legislation cannot foul up anything that was in the manifesto. Mm. And that would, that would make it... Where you might see references is something we were talking about earlier, and that is I think perhaps we're going to get a, a transition from some of the foreign aid budget that will start going into, into the defence budget, or they'll, they'll meld in It's in, all in about the places. money, isn't it? It and is it about goes. the money, and don't forget, uh, if there's going to be an election... There's going to be, after the election, a shuffle around the foreign sectories, the defence sectories, etc. She's got the opportunity then to change her ministers. So, uh, Sir Michael Fallon, <laughs> watch this space. I shall look forward to speculating with you about that. Uh, that's all we have time for today, Mo. Thanks to all of our guests. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP and never miss an episode. You can subscribe to this show as a podcast. Just search online for BFBS SITREP. So, from me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.